Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz, and I am your host and your literary companion for today's episode. The older I get, the more interested I get in history, a subject that I couldn't have found more unappealing as a young guy. But that's because I thought it was about memorizing dates and types of military hardware or whatever. But it's really about seeing the same lessons, forgetting the same lessons, and then recovering from the doom of repeating history, or however the saying goes. And we are going through some weird stuff right now. Some of it is progressive and a bunch of it feels regressive. But I also find that the people who complain the most about losing our old timey values the way it used to be are the ones who don't actually know a lot about history. These are the people that tend to quote Orwell and Huxley out of context a fair bit. Um, And, you know, the older I get, the more interested I also get in people who are older than me. And this, again... I thought was a terrible plight as a teenager, yet now I have friends in their 60s and 70s. And, you know, I'm not hanging out with them because of their age. It's not a fetish, okay? It's because of how much they know and how much they can put into context. And that includes my guest today. He is astonishingly knowledgeable about history. Very few people, I think, know about uh, fighting in antiquity as much as he does. And certainly very few have written about it as much. 44 published novels is the number he gave me in our interview. And his newest, Against All Gods, is slated for release this summer. Christian Cameron may just be the world's most interesting man. He's certainly in the running for it. He's a former naval intelligence officer, and he's an American transplant. He is, as I mentioned, a prolific author. He regularly suits up in armor and throws down, fights for real. And I want to point out that people have varying opinions about reenactment when I tell them. But when I first read his work, uh, the first book I read from him was called The Ill-Made Knight. I was blown back by the detail. It wasn't pedantic. It wasn't fanciful. It just felt real. And that's because he knows this stuff intimately. I'm going to shout out an old high school buddy here, Al. Uh, Al, if you're listening, hello. Uh, he reads like Christian writes, and um, he's the one that recommended his work. And that is how I recognize this fellow in a Toronto cafe that I happen to frequent. We both do. And it launched what has been just an incredibly diverse and educational and fun series of conversations with Christian Cameron. Uh, we started working together recently at my gym as we prep him for his farewell tour of fighting and marching in armor. He's 60 now and ready to step back from some of his pursuits. He's just a blast to talk to. And that is what we are going to do. Before we get into it, I am looking to speak to fathers with ADHD who are high performers. You know, if you are one of these people, you've made this stuff work for you. You figured some stuff out. And I am going to be organizing an in-person workshop in Toronto this fall built around frameworks for exactly these folks. But before we get into it, and there is no obligation to join us, I would love to have a conversation with you if I am describing who you are. You can drop me a line, Jeff, G-E-O-F-F at dadstrength.com, or you can ping me on social media. 
and I would love to talk to you. I'm really excited about what we're working on, and I think it will be transformational for our people. But now for my interview with Christian Cameron. Let's get into it. I have to say I greatly prefer doing these in person. I do 60 to 80 a year. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm a modestly famous person. You, True. You don't have to quote me on that, but... Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I have a book coming out June 23rd, so I'm just entering into my season. And the hilarious thing is, and I like it this way, and so does my wife, I'm like famous for 30 days, and then no one cares. But... Well, to be fair, the only reason I know you is because you are a modestly famous person. And uh, <laughs> I recognized you uh, from the back cover of one of your books, and we met at a local coffee shop. So, Christian Cameron, let's talk about you. I'm a writer. Uh, I'm a reenactor. I'm an outdoors person. Um, but, you know, what's funny is that my daughter is now 18, but for like 17 of those years, I'm just a parent. It, it robs you of identity instantly. There is a restructuring of priorities. So, uh, you have a daughter, right? I do. I have a daughter, Beatrice. She's 18. Uh, she's a totally self-sufficient human being, but uh, going off to university in the autumn. But nonetheless, she was a child. She used to be a child. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that happens. Yeah. I guess that's how that works. Uh, do you know what she's going to study? Uh, okay. So she's going to King's and uh, King's has a thing called a foundation year. So she's basically going to read a lot of dead white men and a handful of dead white women. And um, while... I might have very slight reservations about that in terms of how education should work in a multicultural world. Also, you know, they're doing the Bhagavad Gita and some other uh, non-Eurocentric literature, and uh, it is a good foundation. So you talked about identity changing as a parent. What is your identity as a parent? Uh, well, I'm dad. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of like uh, very gender normative there or gender whatever word fits. Um, uh, although I'm proud to say that my daughter still at 18 from time to time calls me mom. Uh, we were told that if your two-year-old calls the dad mom, then that, that means that the dad is doing half the parenting and that's a good sign. So I, I bask in that possible praise. That's the only type of praise we can bask in, right? The possibility of yeah. praise. Exactly. That's true. My son does call me mom from time to time. See, see, and it's good. That is a good thing, man. That, that, that means you're, you're like pulling your weight. Doing my best over here. So when you were a kid, you really connected with history, with combat, with a lot of the things that make you who you are today. When you were young, how did you think about masculinity? That is an awesome question. So uh, I had a serious war hero as an uncle who was good at all the basic 1950s, 60s John Wayne man things. And he was so good at them that it was a little annoying to be around him. Um, and yet, at the same time, uh, he, was, uh, he, he was very good to me. And he taught me a lot of things that aren't now mainstream acceptable in downtown Toronto, like how to shoot a gun accurately. Um, and he had a lot of advice that, thank goodness, does not apply to my life and which I won't repeat. Um, but uh, at the same time, he, his version of masculinity was pretty scary. It involved guns and violence and um, always being willing to fight at all times. What do you think about the idea that men will 
at some point inevitably be called upon for violence to solve a problem? Well, I mean, one of my favorite books of all time is Alexander Dumas' Three Musketeers. And right at the beginning, dad, kicking D'Artagnan out of the house and sending him off to Paris, basically says, what you do is fight. That's how you make your reputation, fight every time you have an opportunity. And that would have been Donald Cameron's view too. So how in the bones was this stuff for you? Was there anything you looked at and just felt uncomfortable with? You know, I was a very skinny and yet at the same time, slightly overweight preteen. I didn't really like sports. I really spent a lot of my time having both asthma and terrible allergies. So I was pretty sure that fighting was not going to be for me. Now, you can laugh now, (laughs) but at the time I just, I don't know, buried myself in books and went like, well, I'm never doing any of those things. Uh, I, I think the only time I fully satisfied my Uncle Donald was learning to throw a tomahawk. I spent a whole summer learning to throw a tomahawk to his satisfaction. That does sound pretty satisfying, actually. It, it was. When did you go on to join the military? Uh, pretty late, age 27. I'm, I'm going to help you out with your question and say, so I had this life-changing moment where uh, at like 13 and a half, I'm going to say, uh, remember I had terrible as- allergies and asthma. Uh, This fabulous doctor, who, by the way, at the time was 101 years old, um, he basically said, yeah, you're taking a lot of drugs and you're going to spend the rest of your life doing that. Or you can have a really terrible summer and most of your allergies probably won't bother you again. And he had this theory anyway. He'd lived in China. He had a bunch of theories that weren't mainstream uh, medical theories then. They are kind of now. And um, anyway, so I did that and I sucked it up for a summer and it was a fairly miserable summer. Um, And then I learned to play baseball and then I had a very different life. So from like 14 on, I wasn't really great at sports, but I did sports and that was kind of transformative. In what way? Well, I ceased being overweight. Uh, I really liked team sports. I really liked baseball, but I liked football. I liked them all. And it was funny. I was like a convert. I hadn't done any of that, right? So, so suddenly I'm a 14-year-old going like, oh, how do you throw a spiral? Um, and I have real long arms, which you can see looking at me. And I had a great fastball. And I really basically couldn't play baseball except that I could throw an accurate fastball. I don't know why. You know, you can be mildly popular with an accurate fastball. So you had specialist skills, but there's a pretty big age gap between 14 and 27. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, um, I discovered fencing. I went to see a movie called The Three Musketeers with Michael York and Raquel Welsh, still the best Three Musketeers. And, uh, you know, my dad, you don't know this, my dad had done a fair amount of uh, theater tech and stage combat. So my dad was like, oh, you want to learn to fence? I can teach you to fence. That actually started at age 11, not at 13. Uh, And I got really into that and I went to classes and I had to go all the way to Boston from Rockport, Massachusetts to take classes and I did. Uh, And I never stopped fencing. Um, But fencing is really, really different from a lot of other sports and martial arts. I'm going to offend a lot of fencers, but I'm going to say like, you don't really have to be in tip top shape to be a great fencer. To be a good fencer, to be a great fencer, you have to be an Olympic athlete. But in my day, one of the best fencers in Boston was about 35 years old, and he smoked all the time. He wasn't on the piste fencing. 
And that was a really bad example for young people. <laughs> um, but you didn't need a lot of wind to fence your five touches in your pool. Yeah, technically it's not really aerobic. It's not really. It, it's um, one of the best fencers, one of the best instructors I had, uh, had post-polio. And he used to joke, and he was 72 years old when I was fencing against him. He, he'd plant himself on the strip and basically say, if you don't come in my range, I can't hit you and we're zero, zero. And your dad was a military guy, right? I think he would resent that description, okay. but he, he did six years in the military. How would he have described it? Well, I, dad hated the military, whereas I really enjoyed it. So we had very different experiences because we had different kinds of social skills. Dad was really good at saying, I'm different from all of you, so I'm just going to sit over here by myself. That's a very unfair thing to say about my dad and yet very accurate. Um, and I've never wanted to sit all by myself, so I always find a way to get along with people, or I usually do. Um, and I really enjoyed the exact, it's funny, dad and I have talked about this a million times because dad and I share fly fishing and we would just go fly fishing and talk about stuff. Uh, the very elements of, he was in a naval squadron, I was in a naval squadron, uh, he was a backseat aviator and an intelligence officer, so was I. And, you know, all he could remember was the misogyny, the foolishness, the sort of anti-intellectual humor. And I'm like, yeah, I saw all of that, but I also saw uh, brotherhood, serious emphasis on honor and honesty um, and a different kind of social skills. And also I saw some really good male behaviors about things like misogyny. Uh, the handsomest guy in our squadron who could have been a lady killer was instead every woman's protector. And that was a really good example for a younger version of me. And he was like the God. He went on to be an astronaut. He was like a great pilot. And everybody loved him. And he was also a morally very good person. That's more than a little nice to hear. So going back to this gap, how did you join the military? And I guess what I'm really curious about is how did you become a spy? Yeah. Uh, well, I went to university. So almost all that time that you're missing there was me in university. I probably took longer to get an undergraduate degree than anyone in history. Uh, I did quite well academically. It's just that I had no money. So I kept having to drop out to make more money and then I'd go back anyway. So that took a long time. Did a lot of fencing, played some great intramural football. Uh, I think my love of football dates from university. Uh, and then, um, yeah, and then I joined the military, which is pretty much what I had intended to do all along, uh, to be honest. I, and um, that was different for some people, like my girlfriend and my mom, who had been sure I didn't mean it. Uh, and um, then, you know, I, I, I thought I joined the U.S. Navy as a surface warfare officer, but I discovered upon graduation that I had signed up to be an intelligence officer because my recruiter had a quota and he'd lied to me, like recruiters throughout history. So I was taking part in a long, long tradition of being lied to by a recruiter and that, that's good. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I went to my squadron and that was fine. And then after the squadron, I went to um, an organization that when I was younger, no one had ever heard of, but now they have a TV show. So you know what NCIS is. Uh, so I went to NCIS as a, uh, an officer uh, and I worked as an analyst. And then <clears throat> uh, my partner and I were sent to do a thing, which I can't describe. And at the end of that thing, uh, various people decided that I should be sent to what is basically spy school. 
And so I did that, and then I never looked back, which I will say, uh, and then I had a whole career as, an, as a, what you would call an intelligence officer, a clandestine operations officer. Um, but I want to say too, because I don't say this often, and this might be interesting to people listening, I'm kind of sorry I did. Like, I really enjoyed the whole uniform wearing part of the Navy. I really like military tactics. I liked the life of the squadron. I actually liked being at sea. There's a lot about being on a ship that is amazing, like the sea. Like, being in the North Atlantic in a storm, especially when you're on a big ship so that nothing bad is going to happen to you, is just so moving, so awe-inspiring. Anyway, the sea. I like the sea. I think it shows in my books because I talk about it a lot. Uh, and I went clandestine because it sounded really exciting and because, to be really honest, being a military intelligence officer is dull as crap. Uh, you're basically mostly a talking head and occasionally you're a researcher. And hey, I love doing research, but it, remember I thought I had driven, joined to be a ship driver. I was gonna be like Horatio Hornblower and captain my own ship. And that was never gonna happen. So I thought, all right, it'd be J I'll be James Bond instead. And it turned out it was way more like being an insurance salesman than like being James Bond. So that was different. Anyway, uh, when I look back, I sometimes think, uh, my second squadron commander said, you don't want to be an intel officer, you want to be an aviator. Just like, I can make that happen for you. I can change your designator, send you off to Naval Flight Officer School, and you never have to do the intel stuff again. And I said no, and when I look back on that, he was right, he knew me better than I knew myself. However, you know, it sounds great, like I worked for the CIA. Yeah, it sounds great. Uh, it's a lot duller than people imagine. Also, I can't really tell you any details. We've got both pieces here. I can't tell you anything, but what I can tell you, I assure you is boring. Yeah, that's kind of true. Like, uh, I, I did some really fun, interesting things that I think you could do the same thing as a member of an NGO. Like, uh, I, I worked humanitarian relief in Kenya as a clandestine intelligence officer. That's a long story, but I did, and there's really nothing about that mission that was secret. It was more like response to need. Um, and I did some just walking people out of trouble, which if, you, if it was exciting, you were doing it wrong. Right. Uh, my job was to find people, and they were people like doctors and nuns. They weren't, these aren't spies. And my job was to walk them to places so they'd be safer at the other end of the walk. And that's about all the detail I'll go into, but uh, I did my research and I had contacts that I talked to, and so I, I never made it exciting. I made it dull as. I can see you enjoying that process, though. I really did. I, you know, I have a character. Instead of putting words in my own mouth, which can be dangerous later when somebody quotes me, I have a character who says, I don't like war, but I really like the approach to war and the preparation for war. And I, that, that may be a little bit of me. Like, uh, yeah, and you know, you're on a team, you, you put stuff together, you work it all out, and then you do it. Sometimes doing it involved walking 100 kilometers without sleeping. What was the gap between the military and becoming a father? Very short, three years. Uh, so I got out in 2000 because the woman I loved basically had dated me for 10 years and gone like, I'm never marrying you if you stay in this job. And, and I have to say to all the men and women out there uh, who are listening, 
Nobody wants a boyfriend who vanishes for six months at a time and can't communicate at all. And, you know, to all of the partners of undercover cops and intelligence professionals worldwide, like, no, nah, don't date him. <laughs> it's terrible. Don't date him, girl. Um, or boy. Like, it just, no. Uh, and I'm lucky that my now wife uh, stuck it out, but she eventually delivered a pretty straight up ultimatum. Um, and I, I went for the girl and moved to Canada and stopped doing all that which I, I think was a wise decision. Well, I'm selfishly glad it worked out this way because I like talking to you. Now, how many books have you written? 44. That seems like a lot of books. I like to talk. <laughs> See, the, the, the key question here, though, I have to say is how many books have been published? And that's 44. See, because I know people who have written a lot of books. Sure. But it's my job. Yeah. That's how I know you. I recognized you off the back cover of one of your books. You often write out of a cafe. Where, which we share, a cafe we share, yep. You'll be at work and people will show up and say, what's the Wi-Fi password here? And I'll say, there is none. That's why I it's write a feature, here. not a bug. So we talked about your identity, but I want to ask you how you think about being a father, especially from a principles-based kind of perspective? Wow, what an interesting question. So uh, I minored in philosophy in university, and I have never stopped being interested in philosophy. But the parts of philosophy that interest me aren't apparently very interesting to philosophers these days, because I'm interested in like ethics and how you write laws, all that stuff the Greeks talked about all the time, and then, you know, like not kind of what modern hermeneuticists by the way, one's a good friend of mine, so I should watch my mouth. But it's not really what is in the heart of modern philosophy. But anyway, uh, but it does shape your parenting. And also, I go to church. I'm a sort of middle-of-the-road Anglican. Boring, boring, boring. Um, and that can shape parenting, possibly not in the ways that the minister would think. Because uh, certainly the Anglican church has done a lot of not very perfect things in the last few years. Anyway, uh, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble by the end of this podcast, I can tell. I, uh, I'm still really burned that the Anglican Church has not uniformly okayed gay marriage. Just, just saying. It's just one of those things that like, lights me up. I still go. Anyway, uh, but it all informs parenting. And I'm afraid I didn't learn this right away as a parent, so I guess I'm dumb or not well-informed. But Actually, parenting is almost exactly like military leadership. So if you've never been in the military, you probably imagine that military officers and NCOs give orders. And okay, if the building's burning down, someone will give an order. But actually, most leadership is consensual. Uh, in fact, uh, I'll tell you the God's honest truth, all leadership is consensual. Like, Military leadership may give you a certain number of laws you can use to back up your authority, but if you have no authority, no amount of law will give you authority. And that's a lesson for parenting right there. Um, uh, especially, a, parenting gives you a supposed subordinate who's um, never given consent, and uh, that, that can be telling. Um, and then one of the things that's really a bad idea when you're a military officer is to try and be a little god who's always right. 
And that turns out to be a terrible way to parent, too. Um, uh, and um, I don't know, I could draw a thousand parallels, but I will say that once I latched onto the fact that, all kidding aside, almost everything about parenting, you know, one of the basic rules about being a good officer to me, uh, dealing with much younger enlisted guys, mostly guys, but women too, was give it five minutes. It was one of my rules, like do not react immediately. Give it five minutes, never. And that takes time and you don't always have time. So sometimes five minutes is count to 10. But I would say that was probably my greatest, most important thing about parenting, still is. I have an 18 year old. Count to thousands or count as high as you can manage. You need some kind of time delay, yeah. some kind of friction. I can't tell you how often something to which my initial reaction is ferocious. 60 seconds later, it's a lot less ferocious. Five minutes later, it's kind of blah. Emotions are so convincing. In the moment, in the right? Moment. It's like yeah. a drug you're addicted to and you go like, oh, I should be mad. Oh, no, she bought more lipstick. I probably shouldn't be mad. In fact, I probably shouldn't comment at all. Yeah, yeah, maybe this one I'll keep to myself. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll keep them all to myself. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I learned some good lessons from the military and I have had a lot of great female friends um, to provide me with ideas of role models, like my wife, who, who to provide me with ideas of what I'd like women to grow up to be, what my I'd like my daughter to grow up to be, and that's cool and useful. Tell me about that. Well best military officer I ever met, bar none, was a woman who had gone to the Naval Academy and was tough as nails and unshakable in her faith in herself. And that was, it wasn't a lesson because I'd already seen such women in the theater. My parents were theater people, but uh, she was just, she was the best military officer I think I served with. And I kind of looked at her and went, wow, if I ever had a daughter, I hope she grows up to be like you. And, but Reenacting is full of women too, who are fantastic leaders and role models, and um, and they're good at everything. It's annoying sometimes. Anyway, uh, uh, but yeah, I, I I mean it in its general. You know, like when you know a bunch of great people, they they form you. They they form your ideas and you go like, those, those are the people. There's a kind of person that's why I'd like my daughter to be like. And I hear a lot, sorry, I'm going to be a little anti-misogynist here. I hear a lot about men and raising sons and mm -hmm. like, and I kind of nod along and go, well, that's great. What do you know about raising daughters? Um, and I have known a number of male friends, but never a female friend who have both sons and daughters and mostly what they talk about is their sons. And I go like, bro, your daughter is every bit the human being your son is and she's probably listening. Anyway. I've heard a lot of people say that boys are easier, which maybe that's true, or maybe it just means folks aren't paying as much attention to the emotional lives of their sons. I think that there are no easy human beings. I mean, I admit that from time to time, I meet a young person and go like, wow, either your parents are amazing or they just won the lottery. And I sometimes feel like my wife and I won the lottery. Our child is mostly happy. And it, 
that's not actually on us. And this is one of the other things that I learned as a parent from the moment I was sitting in Trinity Bellwoods in the sandbox with like nine moms and two other dads to today is it's not all parenting, you know? And you, it's easy to be judgmental and go like, why is your kid screaming? Like no other kid is screaming, but you don't know what happened yesterday or an hour ago or what's in that kid's mind. And, and as time goes on, you go, oh yeah, every one of us parents is having a different experience because there are, there's, there's no instruction manual. There's a little saying that I love <laughs> um, and they're all different. It is a conceit, isn't it? This idea that everything my child does, has accomplished, is, is the result of my volition and action. Yeah. I willed it into being. I, you know, I used to really love stoicism. And I, I mean, I still kind of do. And I think you and I have talked about this. I think it's better to behave as if you are responsible for whatever happens to you up to a point. But we both know that's not true. And it's doubly not true in parenting. Like you're not really responsible for everything your kid does. Um, but it's better to accept it that way, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. There's an expression I like. It's not your fault, but it's your responsibility. Yes. Uh, I heard that a lot in the military. That you did. What are some of the things you've tried to Zen garden, I guess, for lack of a better term, in Beatrice? I don't know if I've Zen gardened it because I have a feeling that she just came this way. But uh, to me, the best attribute is courage. And courage is a complicated attribute because my sneaky feeling is that for most people, courage is just refusing to show your fear. That's my, my feeling. I, maybe that's just because I'm a coward and that's how I approach cur courage. But um, yeah, and so I'm delighted to find that almost nothing phases my daughter except tomatoes. Like <laughs> she's great at camping. She doesn't flinch at stuff. Or um, I don't want to tell a personal story, but uh, I'll just say, you know, something happened when she was an early teenager that was really unfair. It wasn't violent or bad. It was just unfair. And she just wrote it. And she didn't write it from some sort of low self-esteem. She wrote it because she was like, well, sort of a stuff happens attitude that I admired greatly. Yeah. Because if it had happened to me, you'd have heard all about it. Yeah, same here. <laughs> um, how do you think about... I hope she never hears this podcast, by the way. That's too more, much praise. <laughs> We'll keep it between us. How do you think about things like grit and determination that are, you know, largely pretty universal? And I think we, we generally want to try to equip our kids with, you know, so they can overcome adversity, so they can be successful. And I think you've given credit where credit is due here to your daughter. Is there anything that you have intentionally tried to model for her. Yeah. And that's a, I mean, that is not, that is a bumpy road. Uh, I, uh, my daughter suffers from fairly severe ADHD and that makes a lot of things I'm good at, not a straight road for her. Right. And that can be frustrating for both of us. And there's been a lot of learning and I, I, I hope I'm getting better at it. Um, Anyway, uh, she, but yes, you know, like 
I'm, I guess the lesson, because we're, we're not as unalike as she imagines. Uh, I have a lot of ways to trick myself into behaving like a disciplined person. And uh, I, I'm a very simple person. I operate on a pretty simple reward system. There's no punishments. I'm not going to punish myself. But I, I hold out little rewards for myself, and I only give them to myself if I do the thing that I promised myself I'd do. I'm not even going to pretend I always do the thing I promised myself I'd do. But by and large, this system has worked for me since about age 17 when I stumbled on it. And you know, I've sort of perfected it over the years. And I don't say this is for everyone. This is for everyone who suffers from whatever my various problems is uh, are. But uh, I, I feel like it is a system that is maybe beginning to work for my daughter. But she'd have to be sitting here getting interviewed to give you an honest answer to, to that. So you see this as an incentive. After I write a thousand words, I will have a delicious pastry. I don't get to watch an episode of Bones, a TV show I'm utterly addicted to, until I have done my work and my workout for the day. You know, like, um, and then I only get to watch one. There it is, unless I'm feeling depressed, in which case I may watch five, and that's a whole other story. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, and I like things, um, not necessarily the things that everybody else likes. Uh, I have a really old car and a really old stereo system, so I, I, I'm not good at modern consumer culture, but I like things like fancy armor and swords and things like that, and they tend to cost a lot of money. So another reward is like, if I do all these things, I am allowed to spend this $800 on a knife. Well, that's kind of cool. If that thing is there, it is sort of an affirmation, a reminder of the work you did. I want to go back to ADHD. Often in young girls, it flies under the radar completely. So we, we know this more now, but it's still getting underdiagnosed. Where did the conversation begin on this for you two? Uh, pretty early on, age 11. Maybe that's not early, but it seems like a long time ago. And it wasn't correctly diagnosed then. Or maybe, uh, anyway, um, we wandered around it a lot, all the way to age 17 when it was sort of staring us in the face. Um, and that we all wandered, that's, that's something we all share. Everybody was, um, and uh, yeah. It's, it's a very complicated thing. I, you know, I've listened to podcasts. I've read books. I'm still not sure I know that very much about ADHD. And so I'm going to make an accusation which may be totally unfair, and that is I'm not sure the medical community really understands ADHD. Or rather, maybe there's 55 or 60 things that are all held under a single blanket label. Yeah, it's not something you can see on a brain scan you can't detect it in genetic testing. There's no kind of imaging that's going to show you ADHD. It is a cluster of traits. It is a likelihood of certain things that are universal, but we just see more of in an ADHD population. Constellation is the word. It's a good word. It's the collection. It's the constellation of traits, yeah? A absolutely. And I mean, I'll say almost in praise, there are elements of ADHD that when I'm camping with my daughter, 
make her a better camper. Yeah. And so it's not a concern. I'm not, I, I'm a, an historian and I don't get concerned about change. I think change is, I, I think people who get concerned about change should read more history and understand how often we change. Sure. But um, I believe that my uncle Donald, who was very, very successful in his life at almost everything as a war hero, who then coasted on his war hero status pretty much for the rest of his life, also had a massive amount of ADHD and maybe some other complications. But actually, it made him the John Wayne character that he was. Um, and, I, you know, society values different things at different times. And I worry a little, not a ton, like I say, I'm not afraid of change, that as society changes, we change our values and then we suddenly announce that something that in 1750 might have been on the frontier or in the Seneca nation might have been heroic uh, attributes is now a disease called ADHD. <laughs> right. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, including how we think about violence, how we approach violence. And there's this sort of assumption, I think, or that I used to have, that it has been linear progress since antiquity. We have become more civilized and it's been a straight line. Is that how you would describe things? There is a really excellent book, about three-fifths of which I agree with. And that's pretty arrogant of me because the author is a neuroscientist of the highest caliber. But anyway, it's called The Master and His Emissary. One of the hardest books I've ever read, 800 pages, probably made me look up 600 things. Uh, it's not about ADHD specifically. It's about brain function. Yeah, it sounds like an executive function thing. Well, but even that, it's sort of about the left brain, brain, right brain divide and what that means and why it affects all of us and yada, yada, yada. You should read it. You'd enjoy it. Um, but in the meantime, uh, he, he deals with that and he, he posits a theory. It's not the theory he believes in. He just posits it to show, to make you think that actually we're decaying, that we hit our height, uh, human, humanity hit its height sometime in the 7th to 5th century BC, when almost every religious text you've ever heard of was produced, um, when um, Greek philosophy and Indian philosophy, sort of the two mainstays of human philosophy today, uh, both came into existence. I'll probably offend philosophers listening to me to say, I know other philosophers who are basically like, yeah, by the time, by the time Plato died, almost everything that was useful to be said about philosophy was done. Um, but uh, I, don't, I don't really believe that. I just said it to be annoying. Um, but, I, uh, but again, he doesn't say this is true. He just says, think about it for a moment and ask yourself if, if we haven't got it all wrong. And I think what he's trying to suggest is that once you admit that there is change. Because when I was in university, it was very popular to say that evolution virtually ended with sentience. Sentience ended evolution. It's something they said in, in classes. Uh, I don't believe that and neither does the author. But the author says, well, if you believe in evolution and you believe that we are still evolving, that doesn't mean we're evolving to be better or more intelligent. 
Because his concern, yeah. I'll, I'll just cut to the chase of 800 pages, is that we're evolving to be more like the machines, the computers that we use, and that that's not a good evolution. That's really bad for us. But because our whole world is now dedicated to these machines, we're going to evolve to be more like them, to interface better with them. I was out for lunch a couple of weeks ago with a friend of mine, and we're sitting there and he says, you know, um, and this guy notably doesn't own a smartphone. And he said, look around. And with a couple of exceptions, right? And we know that um, things have changed technologically. But if you just look at the urban landscape, do you really see any massive differences compared to, say, the 70s? Have things changed that much? And I was like, yeah, fair point. I have an example that I give all the time because I'm, ag I'm agreeing with your friend. I, I don't across the board, and I believe that anybody who was into medical technology would immediately snort sure. and say, like, 1970s, my left bippy. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, I think it depends where you are. But um, I keep having this experience across my life. I'm going to give you a specific example, but I, I probably had one happen last Tuesday. So uh, I was on an aircraft carrier in the Gulf War, and um, we were flying round-the-clock ops. And... For reasons that have never been entirely clear to me, our admiral decided that we were going to go from paper. Um, we, we just shown a camera on a piece of newsprint, and I would write the weather report on it. We were going to go from that to doing it all digitally with a digital system that none of us really understood. So I went from a process that took me about 15 seconds to a process that took me a full hour. And I had my own flight to get on and anyway and i guess at some point the digital world is labor saving i'm just not always convinced it's labor saving right now and uh, i'll give you my most recent example i was just buying something at a local store that you probably shop at too helmets pet store sure. and <laughs> the person behind the counter ended up giving up and writing something down <laughs> because uh she couldn't feed it into her completely digital cash register. This happens to me often enough that I just say, like, yes, computers. And I'm not a Luddite. Like, I, I kind of understand how they work, and I'm, you know, I own a cell phone. I couldn't actually have my career without that cell phone. Mm -hmm. But I turn it off when I go camping, and I really don't miss it. Out of curiosity, how's your daughter with technology, smartphones and such? She's great. That's yep. what, our standard joke is that's why we had her. So that, so that we have somebody to do all that for us. Um, and, oh, dad, like I, probably the commonest said words in our house as she'll snatch my phone from me and find whatever I was looking for, you know, like, but, but I downloaded it. No, dad, you didn't. Things happened. Things happened. Maybe not the ones we wanted, but, you know, they happened. Uh, on the continuum from free range to snowplow parent, where would you put yourself? Well, I'm not alone. I have a partner. And uh, if ever there was a team sport, it's parenting. Most of the time, I'm the free-range parent. And most of the time, she's the snowplow parent. But, and that works, by the way. I think one of each is a great idea. But we also bizarrely switch roles on subjects that might not be the ones you guess at. And suddenly we're on the other side of that fence looking at each other and going, what, what, you, what, wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that 
kind of fun too, but uh, uh, neither of us is hard pegged against the edge of our respective uh, uh, snowplow versus uh, free range, but we, we have a tendency and that, that the, the team works out. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I know that when my wife and I have talked about it, uh, about differing parenting styles, she's been the one to point out, this is how it should be. You don't want the same parenting style from both parents. There's a value to having uh, differences. No, and, uh, you know, up to a point, I don't know, I, I'm not an expert parent. I've only had one. But up, up to a point like age 12 or 13, I think it's good parenting to not show any division between the two of you. And then actually there's an opposite to divide and conquer where you, you can actually show your child that you disagree because then you're offering two life ways to your child for later on. Um, and also uh, social life and social skills are really important and knowing that you have to meet two dichotomous goals at the same time. I'm sorry, that is real life. That is how almost all real life is. Get along with your coworkers and please your boss. Uh, those are two different goals. They are seldom the same. And so knowing that mom wants you home at 11 and dad is willing to let you stay out till one, but is really gonna be annoyed if you're drunk. How do you meet both of those goals? Well, there's different ways and you can choose different ways and you can disappoint both parents or you can like, anyway, I think it's good. Yeah, you know what comes to mind to me for this? It's like a stereoscopic vision. Um, our ability to see dimensionality is because our eyes are at slightly different angles. They're getting two slightly different Im you know, images and cobbling them together is what gives us a better sense of perspective. And I would imagine it's, it's kind of the same. And I guess, you know, at some point, maybe, you know, we get to break the third wall of parenting. I don't know at what age exactly and we can kind of turn to our kid or our kids and say, Hey, you know, um, one of us wants this, the other one wants that. Maybe you want this other thing. How do we all of us make this work? One thing that comes to mind, uh, it was a previous episode I did with Michael Bellman. And we talked about how, you know, maybe we're under the impression that we should always just have it locked down emotionally as parents, but there is real value in, in losing it and then getting it back and modeling that, that process of regulation, right? And kind of bringing these two things together, you know, it, it's like when things aren't working, when we're not agreeing, we can talk about, hey, how do we collectively make this work in a way that makes sense for everyone and kind of holds up the priorities of whatever our, I guess our family values are. Yeah. Like I say, I don't know what point I, I go back to my tin God statement. I actually tried to be a perfect officer for a while in the military and just do everything right. Don't ask me how that worked out, but <laughs> it wasn't the best idea, but there's different styles of leadership and there's different styles of parenting and different kids, I mean, I already said this, are different. So for some kid, you might never want to show that you disagree. And for another kid, you might want to show that at age five. Anyway, I think it's a team sport and you, you didn't make that kid by yourself. So the two of you are just going to have to find a way. Although it worries me that two of the nicest people I know are the children of single moms. And I think, uh-oh. What does that say? That's a fine question. Fabulous time management skills. That's what it says to me. Yeah, autonomy, I think. And probably when it doesn't work, it doesn't work spectacularly. Yeah. And when it does work, 
you know, you're going to have these kids that are used to high levels of autonomy and can self-govern and are probably really set up for success in this world. So when it comes to your daughter, it sounds like you've given her quite a bit of freedom, quite a bit of autonomy. So let me ask you this. What are for you the outer boundaries of that freedom? Where do you, or where would you draw the line? Yeah. Uh, you ask good questions. I think the outer boundaries of freedom are entirely self-created and are about whether or not you decide you are living in a community. I think this is the error that many of my American friends who use freedom almost as an epithet don't understand. I guess I don't really believe much in the rugged individualist, and a lot of that is based on wilderness camping. I always sit, want to say to men who are like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here all by myself with my guns and I'm going to survive the zombie apocalypse. And I'm like, really? With no friends? No, you're not. I, I mean, you, you may be heroically like you're in a movie for the first 20 days, but, um, and who are you going to drink a beer with or cold water when you run out of beer? Like, what's the point of this life you're living by yourself <laughs> with your guns? Anyway, um, so... This is my long-winded, and I'm always long-winded, this is my long-winded way of saying, like, once you admit that actually you mostly thrive in a community, you build the boundaries for yourself. And the ancient Greeks knew that, and I, I feel like most people know this today. Uh, as soon as you're in a community, you go like, well, I can't do this because it offends Jeff. Like, I like Jeff, and he doesn't like it when I do this. I had a lot of very formative experiences on the aircraft carrier because I was a nerdy mostly intellectual kid. I had thrived in university. And, you know, in university, you kind of do whatever the hell you want. I mean, within like legal limits or even outside of legal limits. And then I got to the Navy. And even in the Navy, there wasn't much I couldn't do until I got to the aircraft carrier. So just one tiny example, I smoked a pipe. I think I had been on the aircraft carrier like five days before somebody turned to me in the combat information center and said, put that thing out. And it wasn't somebody superior to me. It was just another guy. And he's like, bugs the hell out of me. Don't do that again. And therein I learned lesson one of life on an aircraft carrier, which is everyone is really blunt. And it could be chocolate eating. I saw people call other people out over all kinds of stuff. That's because you've all got to live together in really compact space. But suddenly a whole lot of ancient Greek philosophy made sense to me where I was like, oh, you're all packed into it tiny Greek polis, and you all want to be strong, manly men, but there's things you can't do because <laughs> it offends Bob or Jeff. Um, and so, again, my long-winded answer is all the boundaries are the boundaries you make for yourself, but you make them for yourself when you agree to be in a relationship, in a community, in a group, in a gym, in a dojo, in a saldarm. You know, I look at that rugged individualism and those shelves lined with canned goods. And I wonder, like, are you ever going to eat a salad, some fresh produce? Uh, do you know anybody with some books? Like, how are you going to navigate your whole life? When you're a fantasy writer and a modest martial arts person and you own guns and do reenacting, sooner or later, the zombie apocalypse comes up in a campfire conversation. I have issues 
systemic racism issues with the whole idea of a zombie apocalypse. But let's leave that aside for the moment. Um, That's another. Full I believe episode, I see a much darker like. objective under the zombie apocalypse. Let's just leave it there. But uh, yeah, in the event of a giant disaster, I'd like to have a lot of friends, and I'd like to recreate society as quickly as I can. Yeah. Uh, my experience of near anarchy is people are super ugly and you really don't want to go there. Yeah, we're not seeing humans in their best moment. Nope. Talk to me about your... Well, I have been lucky all my life. I, You know, uh, I used to almost have it as a saying that I've been surrounded by heroes. I've had great mentors. I, I had two fabulous professors in university. I had two really, really incredible Jesuit priests in high school. Uh, my dad was pretty amazing. I mean, uh, like that, that may seem like a banal thing to say. Maybe all our dads are pretty amazing, but my dad seemed like he was 10 feet tall all the way to the grave. Um, and, uh, and then I got to the military and I had like a verified grade A multiple silver star winning uh, war hero as my first skipper. And he turned out to be the gentlest, most. So we're sort of talking about masculinity. There was almost no element of mainstream masculinity that he did, except for having absolute authority and all the medals that his country could possibly give him to demonstrate that his uh, level of heroism was ridiculous. And quick story, because he was a very quiet man, very unassuming, very modest, actually didn't wear most of his medals most of the time. Uh, so uh, in the middle of being in his squadron, I was driving north to see my girlfriend because we were in Florida. And I picked up a hitchhiker in Pennsylvania who was an old, very alcoholic man. And it developed in 10 minutes that the somewhat smelly individual in the side seat of my 280ZX had been my skipper's door gunner in Vietnam. And I discovered that they called him Crazy Horse because there was nothing he wouldn't do. And uh, so I heard five stories of insane bravery in like five seconds and went, so I went back to the squadron and said, Skipper, do you remember this? And he's like, let's not talk about that. We don't talk about that now. And on the flip side, uh, on the first night of the Gulf War, when a lot of young men were counting their kills, they were like, I'm going to shoot down so many Iraqi planes in the first. He uh, stood up in front of the whole air wing and said, this is going to be a war. And what that means is by tomorrow morning, one of you will fly your plane into the ground because you're too excited and you'll be dead. And that really shocked everyone. And he didn't talk about heroism or patriotism. He's like, everybody take a deep breath. It's going to be bad, you know, and you're not going to get any sleep. And, you know, and he was actually the only man on our aircraft carrier who'd like done it all. It was a very interesting speech. I virtually worship him for it. And I've repeated it in a couple of books in various time periods because it was so good. So he was a mentor, but man, I had educational mentors. I had, I don't know, I, I've known some great martial artists. There's a little hero in everybody. And yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Like, I know people who go through life and it's, I suffer from depression, let me just say, but that's not what I'm talking about here. 
I know people who go through life kind of looking at the world through dark brown glasses, and they can tell you the worst thing about everybody they meet. I guess I'm at the other end of that spectrum. <laughs> I, maybe I have rose-colored glasses, but um, I've just known a lot of great people. I can't just single out one mentor. Uh, I had the best Aikido instructor who was just great at instructing me at being a better adult. I don't know, like, yeah. Or maybe I take instruction well. That is also possible. It is possible. <laughs> you have a book coming out. Yeah. It's not really what we're here to talk about, but sure. Uh, June 23rd, it's called Against All Gods. It's a fantasy novel set in a fantasy alternate Bronze Age. And you've kind of conceptualized, like you've created your own internal cohesive mythology for this, yes? Yeah. Uh, quick story, kind of dark. Uh, if you've, you, and I don't necessarily mean you, Jeff, I mean anyone listening, have read The Iliad. You don't have to be a modern feminist to re realize that the world of the Iliad is hell for almost everyone in that. Uh, the gods are just playing with the people and the people just die. Women are just chattel. Most men are just there to provide violence and then die. And it's, it's not a very pretty world. It's, it's kind of gut-wrenching. So I, I happen to love the Iliad and I've been reading it since I was 15 and I've probably read it 35 times, but I am aware of all of its dark corners. And I think Homer was aware too. Anyway, so uh, at some point I went like, I'm gonna write a fantasy novel sort of in that world, but where the humans decide to do something about it. And the obvious thing to do is get rid of the useless gods. I am very much looking forward to this. I think it's gonna be a blast. Well, I hope so. Thank you very much. Uh, Jeff, I always like to talk about myself. You're a very good questioner. <laughs> well, uh, I like it when you talk about yourself too. So as it turns out, that works out just fine. Really appreciate you. Well, there we have it. Who would think that the kind of guy that could take your head off with a spear would also be such a thoughtful, tune-in dad? Always, always love speaking with Christian Cameron. Thank you for hanging out with us today. Big thanks to my guest, Christian Cameron. Shout out to the Unlearning Network. Uh, quick reminder about my upcoming workshop for high-performing dads with ADHD. Uh, and that I would love to chat with you. If you have ADHD and you've made this stuff work, let's talk. You can drop me a line, G-E-O-F-F -F at dadstrength.com. We'll get into it. Uh, Any uh, request, if you're not already following, uh, rating, etc. Uh, the Dad's Rank Podcast, please do so. That stuff helps a lot. You can follow us on social media. It's the Dad's Rank Podcast on Instagram. You can find us. It's pretty easy. It's pretty doable. Take care of yourself out there. We'll see you soon.